Well, before starting the sermon today, I just want to uh, make a quick mention that uh, the subject matter of the sermon today um, does have some things which might be foreign to little ears, and so parents use your discretion about that. I think the text does speak to the subject matter. So, I'll start with an illustration. I distinctly remember the day that I was painfully made aware of the fact that I'm no longer as flexible as I once was. Perhaps you've had experience with that. I'm only approaching 40, and I know some of you are um, beyond 40. I was docking a boat, and you know, when I was young, I could, the boat would get started and start to pull away from the dock, and what I would do is I would, you know, have one foot on the boat, one foot on the dock, and I would give the boat a push, you know, just so that the captain didn't have to maneuver it quite so much to get it off the dock. Well, this day, I went to give it a push, and I realized I wasn't going to flex as I used to flex, and I went splash right into the water. And it was nasty water. It was, you know, in a marina, and so it was gross. Friends, as we look at the text today, I want to look at that, that lesson, um, because Lot, in a lot of ways, is straining between the righteousness of God and the wickedness of the city and the world that he lives in. And I want to tell you, don't do that, because you'll end up in the drink whether you're trying to bridge the gap either intellectually or because you're struggling with this particular kind of sin, jump into the boat. For goodness sake, jump into the boat. That is the church, the ark of the church. We left off last week with the three strangers that visited Abraham and Sarah discussing the wickedness of Sodom that city, that Canaanite city, and God disclosed to Abraham what he was about to do to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in his judgment. He did so, so that Abraham could understand right judgment and justice and righteousness. But by God's own investigation, there were not ten righteous men in Sodom and Gomorrah, only Lot's family, and as we'll see Even amongst Lot's family, there were those who were not righteous. Today, as we look at the text today, we see, number one, the destructive power of sexual sin. And number two, the hope that is in Christ Jesus alone of deliverance. So let's start with number one. Sin destroys, period. Sin destroys destroys. It destroys individuals, it destroys human society, it destroys community, destroys families. Without individual righteousness, there can be no justice, and where there is no justice and no righteousness, there is sin and wickedness. But God desires for his people to be just. And so as we look at the text today, we see this tragic tale of Lot and his family, the nephew of the great patriarch Abraham. You'll recall Lot is his nephew who Abraham treats more like a brother. But it's also a story about deliverance and salvation that comes 
to Abraham, or to Lot rather, but it's a costly deliverance and salvation. Open with me, if you would, to page one of the bulletin, or the order of service, or if you have your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. Kate read for us this morning from Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. And we're not going to be going line by line today because the passage is simply too long. So I'm going to be jumping around to key areas. But let's look at verses 1 and 2. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. Well, first of all, notice there's a parallel here between chapter 19 and chapter 18. Do you see it? Do you see the parallel between the three strangers coming up to Abraham and these two strangers coming up to Lot? Lot is waiting at the gate, just as Abraham was waiting at the front of his tent. And Lot welcomes these men into the city, even though they're strangers. In fact, right away, he is caring for them, cares for their well-being, right? We get a clue of that here in verse 3. But before we go there, let's take a step back and remember, why is Lot residing in the city of Sodom? Why is Lot residing in the city of Sodom? Why is he living there? Was it because of Abraham's good counsel? Was it because of God's leading? No. Now, I know this was a few, year, a few uh, weeks back, and for him, a few years back. But remember, in Genesis chapter 13, we read this, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out eastward. The two men, that is Abraham and Lot, parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So somehow between chapters 13 and 19, Lot's moved not just from being around this wicked city with his tent to actually living in this wicked city. And we know that Lot knows that it's a wicked city, not just from that passage, but uh, the Apostle Peter writes in his letter to the church, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man lived among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That's the Apostle Peter writes regarding Lot. So Lot's in this city, Lot's tormented by the lawlessness of the sexual sin of this city, and we don't know why Lot has decided to become part of the city, but he has. And this hits our first point, and that is that the destructive, the destructive power of sexual sin 
is often not estimated properly. That sexual sin is much more harmful than people think, even in biblical times. Now we pick up with Lot protecting the two angels from sleeping in the town square, which gives us a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Look at verse 3 in the Genesis 19 reading, right at the bottom of the page there, if you're looking at the bulletin. But he, that is Lot, pressed them strongly, so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made, a feast, made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. We'll continue on with verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, we're told in these verses that men, young and old, down to the last man of Sodom, were at Lot's door, trying to press in. And while our ESV translation translates this properly to know, the context gives us a different usage of that word. The New English translation translates the verse this way, bring them out to us so that we can take carnal knowledge of them. So that we can take carnal knowledge of them. The word in Hebrew is to know. But in Hebrew, to know is a euphemism for sex. It's a euphemism for that when... In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read that Adam knew Eve. Adam knew Eve. And some modern scholars have tried to say that the sin of Sodom was not sodomy or homosexual sex, but rather inhospitality. The Hebrew text here might not be completely clear with the word no, but Lot's calling their action wicked rules this out. They don't just want to get to know and have drinks with these newcomers, notice. That's not the point here. If you have any doubts, continue on reading with, verses, with verse 8. What does Lot do? He offers them his two daughters. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Now, Lot resorts to an abominable thing to offer up his two virgin daughters to these men. Somehow to pacify them in their perverted desires, in their animal instinct. But notice, they have no interest in women. They have no interest in this. We continue on looking at this text, and we see shown to us what St. Peter writes to the church about in the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.25, where we read Peter reflecting on the depravity of the human race 
And he writes, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Verse 26 of Romans 1, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Romans 1, 25-27. But notice the angels intervene. The angels speak up and stand up for Lot. Look at verse 9. But the angels, they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. This is the Sodomites continuing on, pressing Lot. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to, the, to break down the door. But the men, that is the two angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house and shut the door And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. One scholar makes the point that the angels physically blind these men to stop them. But the angels physically blind them, showing their complete spiritual blindness. That they've warped themselves so much that they need this physical sign. Gordon Wenham, a scholar of this Old Testament book, says this. He says, When they did not go home as soon as they... Why did they not go home, rather, as soon as they were struck with blindness? Is this another hint of how deep-rooted their sin was? Divine judgment is supposed to induce repentance. Here it does not. And so greater calamities must be expected. He makes a good point that God's judgment is to bring about repentance. And yet there is no hint of repentance here. They still, in their blindness, try to break down the door, groping at it. Might God have spared the city of Sodom had they all repented at this point? It's an interesting thought. The angels tell Lot that they're going to destroy the city. And they've confirmed God's judgment in the last chapter, 18, verse 20. Notice the language of the angels in verse 13 of this reading. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become so great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Do you hear echoes of last chapter? The outcry, remember we talked about that. The outcry of sin. Throughout the night, Lot pleads with his daughter's betrothed, his son-in-laws-to-be, we read. They think that he's joking. The actual Hebrew here isn't just that they think that he's joking, but they make fun of him. They jest at him as he tries to save them. It's the Hebrew equivalent of, yeah, right, sure, that's going to happen. Or, okay, boomer, right? Why does Lot linger? Why does Lot linger? 
Let's look at verses 15 and 16. As the morning dawned, so the whole night had passed by, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up your wife and your daughter who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside of the city. I think that Lot lingers because he laments the destruction of all that he has. Some scholars look at the Hebrew here and think that Lot actually had other daughters in the city, which, if you think about it, is very possible for a a patriarch of his age, that he had other daughters who were married to some of these wicked men. We know for certain that Lot leaves everything that he has to flee. And that this costs Lot everything. Despite God's wonderful deliverance, Lot's choice has put him in a severely bad place. Lot is pitiable. He's still personally righteous, we're told, but he's pitiable. And foolishness, friends, does have consequences, even for the chosen of God. The draw of sin and longing for its comforts can be tempting. The wanting to bridge the gap, to stand one leg on the Word of God and the other leg in our modern culture is tempting. And notice that even when he's told to flee, Lot won't simply obey God, but rather requests to go to Zor. But then the angels bring down God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a judgment that cannot be questioned. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Stop there for a moment. You know, that description is like the description of a nuclear bomb going off, right? The very animals and plants themselves destroyed, wiped from the face of the earth. There's a great deal for us to learn from this text that God's judgment is perfect and will be executed upon the wicked. And Jesus himself references this Genesis passage. He references it in relation to his final coming in judgment, as we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, where Jesus says this, and this is in verse 25 on page 4, But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, says Jesus about the Son of Man. Verse 26, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, 
fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Notice the words of Christ here. He's talking about what it's going to be like at the end when all is revealed, when the Son of Man comes back to bring His perfect judgment. It will be like Sodom and Gomorrah and people will be feasting and distracted and buying and selling and going about their normal lives having no thought to their eternal situation. Jesus is warning His disciples here. And look, at the beginning of the passage, He says this and to His disciples it tells us. He's warning them. St. Peter the Apostle also writes to the church in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, that Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of what will happen to the ungodly. What will happen to those who are unrighteous and wicked and without God? The warning should be apparent from Genesis 19. But those warnings are often greatly downplayed in our modern and postmodern world, aren't they? I realize that it's difficult for us to see. It's becoming more and more difficult for our culture to accept. But we have to proclaim it, for it's true. But step back and see this warning in this text and see that behind this warning is a love that God does not want this destruction to come upon His people, but it will if we underestimate that destructive power of sexual sin. You see, not all sin is equal. Oh, it's true that all sin takes us out of the right standing before God, and that way it's equal, but some sin is worse than others. Some destroys the soul more. Some entraps people more. Some clings to people closer. And sexual sin is the worst, according to St. Paul, who writes to the Corinthian church, chapter one or chapter 6, verse 18, in his first epistle, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Here is sin. This particular sin, when persisted in, perverts and twists the creatures of God and then goes on and overflows and perverts and twists families, communities, and societies. Particularly in Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexual and bisexual lust and sex are among these sins. They were the sins prevalent in the Canaanite culture an old, established culture, they'd become normal. They'd become accepted. They'd become part of life. Sodom had become so normal and okay with these sins that it had morphed into something even worse. Rape. For that's the word of what they want to do to the angels. They want to rape them. Abusing the foreigner. This is far more than inhospitality, friends. And this speaks to us. It's hard because it speaks to us. We live in a country and increasingly a culture that doesn't merely believe that homosexual lust and action, sodomy, and lesbian sex, 
We don't just believe these things, but we do more than accept them. We laud them. We celebrate them. We normalize them. We try to make them an equal part of our culture. This, friends, is great. Great mistake. A great mistake. A tragedy for our culture and for people who will be entrapped in them and stuck in this sin. You know, I'm old enough to remember back in the early 2000s. That's funny to say, right? But back in the early 2000s when the idea of same-sex marriage was politically laughable. I was a political science major. And I remember talking about this and looking at the polls from 2002 to 2005. Nobody thought that would ever become the law of the land. It was politically untenable. So much that presidential candidates as late as 2011 opposed same-sex marriage universally. Both parties. But look where we are today. Some would say that that's progress. I disagree. The true church disagrees as well and has throughout the centuries. Recently, this perverted thinking has made inroads under the guise of ministry and compassion, even in the church. But there is no compassion in destruction. There is no ministry in leading people down the road to that judgment and destruction. So what are we to do? Well, in wider society, in this way as many others, we, as I've said, are on this pathway to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not there yet, but we are on the pathway. Fortunately, we're not like Lot. We're not completely isolated in our belief that these actions are wicked. There's others outside the Christian faith that condemn them But I think as you look around, it's shrinking. Yet, for the good of the city, for the good of our country, for the good of our children and our children's children, we need to resist this wave of destruction on the grounds that such perverted thinking and behavior is not just immoral, but unjust and harmful, incredibly hurtful to society. There are plenty of arguments and rationales outside Scripture, outside religion, that make that point. But people are too afraid to look at them. People are too afraid to voice them. There's all sorts of arguments to be made from natural law, from science, even political philosophy against this aberrant behavior. I urge you to learn them so that you know them, for they need to be heard. The enemy and opposition wants you to think that this ship has sailed. The opposition wants you to think that this is done, that it's a done deal, that this is part of American culture. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Learn these arguments so that you can resist that political agenda and so that you can protect yourselves and your children your friends and your family, and offer a way of life instead of a way of death and destruction. I know this is particularly difficult to do today, and I know that it's easy for me to stand up in this pulpit and say this, 
when you're in your cubicles or at your desks or at family gatherings. I know it's hard for you, much harder for you than it is for me. But all the more reason, all the more reason to understand what you believe and be firm in it. I know that it's going to continue to be difficult and probably get worse. But remember, this is part of our call as Christians. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. You might have to be careful and wise in how you state your position. But there's ways to do it. For example, ask questions that make people think about why they believe what they believe. I'll give you a couple examples. People often say that freedom and rights is the reason that we should make homosexual marriage lawful as it's been made lawful. Well, if that's the case... Should we campaign? Why should we campaign? Should we campaign to make incest illegal? If it's just about rights and liberty, if it's about love, who you love, and love is love, and all this, well, why not? Why not campaign? Let's give people the right to have incest. It's legal. They might love the person. The other person might even consent to it. Right? If it's all about rights and consent. How many people would go for that today? Not many. And yet it shows the absurdity of their arguments about same-sex marriage. Do you find yourself endorsing sin just because it's vogue or popular right now? That's what this text asks us. One of the things. Friends, here's the bottom line. If you don't understand the principles of these arguments, you cannot be a witness to people that are stuck in this sin. If you don't understand what this sin is and just how destructive it is, you cannot provide a way out. You cannot be the ambassador of Christ saying, deliverance is here, hope is here. Rather, you condemn them to being trapped into a way of death. We cannot be neutral on this. As the church, within the church, the answer should be clear as well. According to God, the author of life, indulging appetites and desires of sexual immorality, homosexuality, bisexuality, polysexuality, transsexuality, and claiming them as an identity is a way of death and not a way of life. It's opposite of the way of life offered by Jesus and outlined in His Word. Sexually immoral behavior and identity can be forgiven. Can be forgiven and can be changed just as any other sin can be forgiven and changed. But we have to offer the option to repent. We have to offer God's grace by saying, Turn away from that way of death and come to the way of life. Look at the last line of the Gospel today. What does Jesus say? Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it.
Friends, is this costly? Is this unfair to those who struggle with this particular sexual proclivity? Yes, it is unfair. Yes, it is costly. Yes, it is tragic that our culture has endorsed this perversion. But because of that, we must offer clarity and grace. And note, what applies to this situation applies to all Christians. All of us are called to leave our former life in order to gain true life. Look at the context of Jesus' words. Verse 32. It's a short verse right before those words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What happens to Lot's wife? Verse 26 of our Old Testament reading. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back and she became pillar of salt. Lot's wife had fled with the angels, had been offered salvation and deliverance, had taken a few steps down the road to salvation and and deliverance, and ends up destroyed because she looks back, because she seeks to preserve her old life rather than losing it for true life. To see, friends, the clarity is here in the Word of God. So let us understand. Let us be clear in the church. Let us do so, so that we can offer true hope. For true hope is here too. Look at our final lesson today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you're doing. In our baptismal vows, we, quote, renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. Leave it behind. Jump from the dock into the saving boat, the ark, as our church fathers have said, of the church, and have true life. And if you're struggling with this sin in the depths of your soul and your heart, hear this. This is not judgment on you as a person. This is judgment upon a behavior. Upon a behavior that God despises because He wants to save you. Because He loves you. Because He wants you to be His own forever. Friends, that's His desire for each and every one of us. Whatever our sin is, let us repent Turn to Him and go down the road of life. Or jump into the boat, however you want to put it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.